Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning, the final from Oakland Coliseum out there in California. It's the Cleveland Guardians 7, the Oakland Athletics 3. Another sweep for the Guardians. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and I want to talk about the actual game on the field, the thing I enjoy, watching baseball being played. And do you realize that since that Kansas City series to start the season, where we split 2-2 with them, every single series the Guardians have played, have played in has ended in a sweep. I that's that's insane. That I don't know. Someone shouted on Twitter like, "Has that ever happened?" I don't know. I I don't know the right website to go to search to research that. I'm going to leave that up to the experts. Um, but it's pretty pretty interesting. Like to see a team this streaky, right? We sweep the Reds. We sweep the White Sox in a game in a series shortened a little bit by weather. Uh, then we go on this tough road trip where we get swept by the Yankees and L.A., and then we come and bring it right back to Oakland. Now, granted, we did get swept by the two really good teams in that mix, and we did sweep two of the lesser teams probably in that mix. The White Sox, uh, you know, jury still being out on them, supposed to be one of the elites in the American League, but not playing that way. You know, did us sweeping them uh, contribute to that? Yeah, probably. Uh, but yeah, so uh, the Yankees and the Angels are really, really good teams. So not a huge shocker there that uh, that's kind of how the season has balanced out so far. Uh, but we take it to Oakland. We do our job. We sweep them out there in California. And we come home feeling a little bit better about the month of April, right? A little bit better about how this season has started. So let's get into the storylines of this game. Let's see what went down. And for me, the top storyline of this game was Tristan McKenzie. Tristan McKenzie and his fastball. Man, the guy pitched really good yesterday. Six and a third innings, only four hits, no earned runs, only one walk and seven strikeouts. Uh, A 96 pitcher. So they let him go deep into this game. I was actually surprised they let him start the uh, seventh inning. Because he was up there around, I think, high 80s, 90 pitches. And they let him go out there and get one more out in the seventh inning. Uh, he does give up, let's see here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hard hit balls on the day. But you know what? Limiting the damage. In fact, what was interesting is a lot of times those hits, and especially that walk, came with two outs. So it's really it's much easier to get out of things when you're giving up a single with two outs as opposed to leading off an inning. When you're giving up a walk with two outs as opposed to leading off the inning. Jed Lowry in the first singles with two outs, but then Sean Murphy would fly out. Uh, Chad Pinder would single with two outs in the second, but then Kevin Smith would fly out. In the third inning, he'd give up the walk to Sheldon Noisy. I think I've been calling him Noose all series. Uh, Noisy uh, would give up the walk there. And then Jed Lowry would fly out. Speaking of pronouncing things, total total side note here. But speaking of pronouncing things, I got to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Dan, who emailed in. He said, good morning. Really enjoying the show. Glad I found it. One thing, it's Palacios, not Palacios. Dan, thank you for keeping me honest. I appreciate it. Yeah, I run through a lot of names on this show. And... Uh, I don't have the time. You know, Al Pulaski and Jensen Lewis had the time to go and make sure they get the pronunciation of all the A's players right broadcasting the game. I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. So I, I honestly do, Dan. I appreciate you keeping me honest. 
I feel like I'm turning into my father a little bit, mispronouncing names like crazy. Um, but hey, I'm making it work. Palacios. All right, I'm going to try to lock that in for you. All right, so those were examples of uh, McKenzie. Again, two outs. It's a little easier to get out of that inning when you're giving up those things with two outs. But how good was his fastball? Let's go to the player breakdown page here. And he threw it 54 times, uh, 22 curveballs, 20 sliders. He is a three-pitch pitcher right now. Um, they took 22 swings at that fastball with four times, so that's not huge, but 13 called strikes makes it a 31% CSW on the day, which is pretty good. Um, they did put 10 of them in play, but like we said, some of those hits came uh, late in innings when he was able to get out of things. Let's look at these called strikes because I think this is impressive, right? One of the things about a pitcher, it's all about location. Overall, he was locating his pitches on the plate. He was really attacking on the plate. Even those curveballs he was dropping down below the zone, even the fastballs below the zone, the fastballs above the zone were still mostly on the plate. So being really aggressive there, being really good with his location and keeping things in that vertical of the plate. The slider he let slide across the zone every now and then. He did throw them for strikes every now and then. About half of them he threw for strikes, and half of them he let sweep across towards that glove side, towards that left-handed batter's box. Uh, but let's look at the called strikes, because I think that is interesting right here. So bringing up the called strikes, and we can see that Tristan McKenzie was working around the outside of the strike zone, painting the black with a lot of fastballs. I am telling you here, looking at this illustrator, He's got a bunch of fastballs up the left side of the plate. He's got a bunch of fastballs down the right side of the plate. Yeah, he snuck a couple of curveballs in there, a couple of sliders in there. But really working around the edges of the strike zone uh, to get these called strikes. And it paid off because he actually got a lot of called strike three. A lot of these strikeouts came on called strikes. Uh, he racks up seven strikeouts on the day. Uh, for some reason, StatCast did not pick up one, which was a uh, a slider at the top of the zone that he got a swinging strike on. Uh, he did blow away Seth Brown way above the strike zone in the second inning uh, for a strikeout. He gets a uh, swinging strikeout on Stephen Piscotti at the top of the zone on a fastball. He paints the outside corner in the fifth inning against Chad Pinder for a called strike three. Um, paints the outside edge to Tony Kemp, the lefty, in the fir very first inning for a called strike three, gets a slider snuck in there for a called strike three against Sean Murphy, and does get Seth Brown to chase a slider out of the zone uh, for a strike three there. So those were his seven strikeouts. Four came on fastballs, uh, three came on sliders, and uh, yeah, a bunch of called strike threes there because he was locating. I mean, that first at-bat against Tony Kemp, let's go to that matchup there. Uh he really, really takes it to him right out of the gate. Um, starts him off with a, uh, a four-seam fastball on the outside edge for a called strike. Comes back with a slider up and in. An interesting location for the slider. It was a tight, fast slider that he took a check swing at. He gets called. They, they appeal and say he did go around, so that's strike two. And he goes right back to that lower outside edge at the knees four strike three and just locks him up so right away from the first batter McKenzie is really hitting his locations especially with that fastball 
Now, there was a section in this game where McKenzie, I mean, really, really took over and got locked in. And it started out with uh, Stephen Piscotti. He ends up striking out four hitters in a row across two innings. Um, Piscotti throws him six four-seam fastballs. Normally, you do not get away with this as a pitcher, right? We talked about this. If you see the same pitch too many times, you tend to hit it. Um, so he tries going high and low against Piscotti. That's the game here. Misses high with a fastball for ball one. Misses low for ball two, so he actually falls behind this hitter. Has to work his way back. Throws one uh, right at the knees for a called strike. Uh, ends up missing again high with a four-seam fastball. Goes high again, but this time keeps it in the zone for a called strike two. Now a full count and goes high again. Again with a fastball, same location, and he swings through it. So just blowing it by a guy at the top of the zone. That's just that's just aggressiveness right there, blowing it by somebody like that. Those pitches, pitch five and pitch six, are basically the same location. So Piscotti knew what was coming. He just couldn't catch up to it. Seth Brown, a little bit different approach against the lefty. He goes a lot of curveball-fastball combos in this one, and eventually it's the slider that gets him. So he misses with a curveball down, comes back with a four-seam fastball up above the zone that he fouls off, misses again with a curveball down, can't get him to chase it, drops a curveball. Those two curveballs that he misses with are on the inside edge to the lefty. Then goes outside and drops a curveball in the strike zone for a called strike. So now he's got it back to a 2-2 count, goes back with a high fastball that's fouled off, and then mixes him up with a slider. That's the swinging strike outside of the zone that he lets sweep across into that left-hander's batter's box right at the knees to Seth Brown, and he swings through it for strike three. So, interesting there. For the righty, he's going hard fastballs, pounding fastballs. For the lefty, he starts mixing in those low curve balls, those low breaking balls with high fastballs. He would continue to roll against Chad Pinder to start the next inning. This time it's again against a righty, but he goes fastball-curveball combo on this one. He uh, misses with a fastball. I actually believe this is up and away. It looks like it's in the exact same location as another pitch. Throws him a curveball in the zone. Frankly, he gets away with one here because this is right down the pipe. So clearly not expecting a curveball in this situation. He fouls it off. Throws him a curveball. He tries to get him to chase, uh, but he misses way down and away towards the dirt with this one. Comes back with a four-seam fastball at the bottom of the zone and gets another called strike, locating around the edges of the strike zone. Throws another one on the uh, up up at the top of the zone, outside edge uh, that he fouls off. And then finally gets a called strike three, paints the outside edge. So he's gone up and down, maybe looking for another curveball since the pitch was down, uh, was expecting those fastballs to be up. Instead, paints the outside edge with a fastball for a called strike three. So, a great job against Chad Pinder there, working the curveball and the fastball mix, and then really, really takes it to uh, Kevin Smith, blows him away on four pitches, throws him a slider that he misses with for ball one, but then comes back with four-seam fastballs, uh, gets a called strike on the outside edge, uh, fouls one off, uh, up a fastball that's up now, so he's going down, he's working his way up the ladder on Kevin Smith. So the first slider is down below the knees, way out of the strike zone. That called strike is around the thighs. Then he comes up at the letters with a fastball that's fouled off and then throws him a high slider. For some reason, it didn't register on 
uh, stack cast, but it's a high slider. I went back and looked at the replay that he swings through for a strike. So he just climbs the ladder on Kevin Smith. So that shows you there's not one way to do this, right? Each one of those strikeouts is very different, but it's an interesting the way he approached each batter going high-low. It seems to be something that Tristan McKenzie does, going high and low in these strikeouts, mixing the fastball and those breaking balls effectively, getting hitting his locations and getting those called strikes, really huge. Now, what is it about Tristan McKenzie's fastball? We hear about it all the time, right? It actually looks faster than it actually is. He averages 92 miles per hour on that fastball, but it, it pops out of his arm, right? Well, one of the things about it is the drop on the fastball. He has a very little vertical drop. Now, every ball is going to drop, even a straight fastball, because of gravity. But he has very little drop. Some of this is due to spin, the way he throws it. Uh, his four-seam fastball only has 11.6 inches of drop. Versus league average, it's actually 2.6 inches above league average. Um that's one of the best in baseball. And StatCast, they always let you know by the color. They highlight things red or blue if it's really above average or below average. And this is a deep red, which lets me know this is way above average uh, across the league for drop on a forcing fastball. So it stays straight, and it almost pops a little bit because of that. Right? It doesn't come down into the zone. It stays up there, especially those high fastballs. So that's pretty cool. Just to give you somebody else to compare that against, I was like, okay, Eli Morgan seems like a fairly average pitcher. So I pulled up Eli Morgan's stat cast page. The vertical drop on his four-seam fastball is 15.7 inches of drop. Remember, McKenzie was at 11.6. This is four more inches that this comes down towards your bat, down into the zone. Versus league average, that's 0.2. So that's just slightly above league average. So that gives you a pretty good idea. Most of the league is around 16 inches of drop on their fastball. McKenzie's only at 11.6. And this is pretty consistent throughout his career. Last year was at 12.5, but it was still 2.5 inches above league average. Uh, 2020 season, it was at 11.7. So really close. And that was three inches above league average. So that's what makes that fastball so effective from Tristan McKenzie. So that was definitely my top storyline of the day. The other big storyline from this game, the other thing that impressed me was, of course, the offense. Because the first game of the series is this back-and-forth battle. The second game is this pitcher's duel that comes down to the wire to the ninth inning. This one, it felt like Cleveland said, yeah, we're going to go get that sweep, right? We It's seven, uh, 6 nothing, pretty quick. 7-0. Eventually, the A's do scratch across those three runs in the ninth inning, but, I mean, at that point, they had already started putting in defensive substitutions, and, like, it was pretty much, it was pretty much over at that point. So, let's get into the offense here, and frankly, I'm more impressed with the innings where we scored one run than the inning where we scored four runs, because that four-run inning is set up by a lot of walks. James Caprillion basically falls apart in the third inning of this game. He has four walks on the day. He only lasts two innings. He doesn't even make an out in the third inning. Uh, so he kind of falls apart. But in that second inning, a nice run scored here. Andres Jimenez with a one-out single. And then Luke Maley gets a high pitch and drives it out into center field, off the wall in center field. And Andres Jimenez gets a good read on it, a good jump. And he's fast. 
Andres Jimenez can fly. Let's see his percentile ranking for sprint speed. They've got him in the 95th percentile, one of the fastest guys in baseball. And he flies around the bases, scores all the way from first to put that first run across. Um, so that was huge right there. Uh, there would be a little bit more to that rally. They would, uh, Miles Straw would single, uh, moving Maley up to third. Maley isn't going to be able to score on that. Uh, it was a pretty hard hit ball, pretty sharply hit ball. He steals second, but Quan would ground out to end that threat. So a nice run. They got that first run across. They set themselves up. They set Tristan McKenzie up, you know, show that they're going to support him on the day. Uh, and it's a nice way to start the game. We'll get back to the third inning because obviously there's a big moment there that you all want to talk about. It might have something to do with a Fermil Reyes. But in the fourth inning here, I thought this run was really good. Steven Kwan reaches on a fielding error. Hey, the guy gets on base. Whatever it's part of the reason of putting the bat on the you know, putting the bat on the ball, putting the ball in play. They've got to catch it, throw it, and catch it again. All you gotta do is run, right? That's the one of the old adages of baseball. And Elvis Andrews with an error lets Kwan on. Jose Ramirez with single uh, into center field. A nice line shot into center field. Quan gets a good read on it. Goes from first to third. Owen Miller would strike out, but Naylor would deliver a ground ball through the right side. Quan comes in to score. Ramirez goes first to third. Reyes would ground into a double play to end that threat. But they scratch across a run there. They take advantage of an error in that fourth inning. Ramirez was the ninth with a nice hit. Quan with some good base running. And they get a run across in that fourth inning. So they take advantage of a situation and they make sure they get one across. Then in the sixth inning, they take advantage of a leadoff walk this time. Straw walks to lead off the sixth inning. Quan with a single. Uh, Miles Straw goes first to third on this one. So Quan delivers the hit there. Jose Ramirez would ground back to the pitcher. They'd actually trap Miles Straw in between third and home, right? He'd get caught off the base. He'd get caught going home. Jose Ramirez was pretty pissed at himself that that ball didn't get through. But Straw does the right thing. He distracts the fielders enough that everybody can move up. Uh, Quan can go all the way to third base, and Straw's waving him around. They know exactly what's going on, but they just there's nothing they can do. They can't let Straw go. They can't go and throw out Quan because Straw will just sprint home. I mean, he's too fast. So all the pitcher can do is just run at Miles Straw, tag him out on the base path, but everybody gets to move up. Even uh, Ramirez gets all the way to second base, and it would prove to be crucial because Owen Miller would be able to hit a sack fly to uh, deep center field that Seth Brown would run down, and Quan would come in easily to score. If he doesn't get to third base on that play, if Straw can't distract the fielders long enough for Quan to move up to third base, then we never get that sack fly. And then when Josh Naylor lines out, that would end the inning. So... I mean, it ended the inning anyways, but it would end the inning without a run coming in to score. So a huge, that's a huge play. That's good baseball right there. That's good base running. I mean, it's the best, making the best of a bad situation, right? You know, you, ideally, you don't want Straw to get caught off the base in that situation. Who knows? A ground ball back to the pitcher. They might actually be able to turn two if Straw doesn't get caught off the base, right? They might be able to turn and throw to second. It was first and third situation. They might be able to turn and throw to second and double them up. It got back to the pitcher very quickly, but Straw on third base does the right thing. Once he's caught off the bag, does the right thing, and it allows a run to come in to score. All right, now going back, doubling back to that third inning. Yeah, things got way out of control here. Uh, Jose Ramirez walks to lead things off, steals second base. 
His first steal on the season, weirdly. Owen Miller would then walk. After a mound visit, Josh Naylor would walk. Everybody's moving up. Uh, they go to the bullpen. They bring in uh, Jacob Lemoyne out of the bullpen. Caparillion's day is done. He just could not locate that fastball. And uh, actually, Caparillion, let's go to his player breakout page really quick. Yeah, he got six swings on that fastball. He threw it 22 times. Only no whiffs on the fastball. Only five called strikes. It's good for a 23% CSW on that fastball. They, they only fouled off one and put five in place. So was not fooling anybody with that fastball. Uh, and couldn't get a called strike on the changeup slider or the two-seamer. Oh, sorry, he got two called strikes on that two-seamer sinker uh, fastball of his. So only 13 called strikes. It's only a 28% CSW on the day for Caparillion. But it really falls apart here in this third inning. And that brings up Fermil Reyes. And Fermil Reyes going against someone out of the bullpen here. And... Uh, how would he fare? How would this at-bat go down? Let's pull up this individual at-bat. And man, he's throwing them all two-seamers, all sinkers. That's really interesting considering Fermil Reyes is a guy who might struggle a little bit against breaking balls, and they go all hard stuff against him. He missed with three in a row inside to Fermil Reyes. So being patient, he then throws him one right on the plate uh, that he takes for a called strike one. Throws him another one down and in that he takes for a called strike. Now, everything has been in. He misses with three in. He gets two called strikes on the inner half of the plate. The last one is outside. It's the same sinker, this time outside, on the plate, but outside at the thighs. And he shoots it out into right field. This must have felt great for Fermio Reyes. 97.7 exit mile per hour exit velocity. It brings in two runs to score. It was the big hit the Guardians needed to blow this thing open. Fermil Reyes finally delivers. And then Andres Jimenez follows that up, by the way, by reaching outside and hitting a double into, right, into the gap in right center field. Uh, this pitch is down, actually out of the strike zone on StatCast. Down in a way, a slider that he goes and gets. Hits it 100.1 miles per hour. Um, and shoots it out into right center field. And... Uh, it brings in Josh Naylor to score. Reyes goes to third and would eventually score on a wild pitch. So that is the third inning for your Guardians. So a huge weight off for uh, for uh, for Mio Reyes. It would be his only hit on the day, but hey, it's a big one, and it probably felt good to know that he still could do it. Um, and then Andres Jimenez delivering that double. That is big stuff from Andres Jimenez. So that one inning didn't impress me as much because it's set up by a pitcher that's completely losing his command and walks the first three batters. So I, it's great that we scratched across four runs out of that. I mean, there are definitely times where the Guardians get gifted an inning like that, and sometimes they don't even you know score one run or no runs, right? Sometimes you hit into a double play and suddenly uh, the whole inning is ruined. But no, they come up with the big hits and really blow the game open in that third inning. So a great offensive day from the Guardians. Almost everybody in the lineup got a hit. The only one not to get a hit was Owen Miller, but he did walk to get on base, and he had that sack fly RBI. So still found a way to contribute, uh, even though he wasn't technically able to get a hit. Uh, everybody else in the starting lineup does deliver a hit at some point in this game. 
So that's what impressed me offensively. And then we got to talk about Andres Jimenez. We got to talk a little bit more because we talked about how good his defense was in that ninth inning the day before. And he just continues to hit. He's hitting 346 at this point. 929 OPS, two more hard hit balls on the day, an RBI, a double, a run scored on the day, and going out and getting that pitch. And they showed you on the broadcast, but I wanted to take a look at it. Frankly, the uh, illustrator on Baseball Savant has kind of been broken for most of the season. Um, when you try to look at these hitters, um, it was just showing you nothing. But they, were, they hadn't thrown a pitch yet. But it's finally up and running, so maybe they finally got enough data to get these uh, illustrator images up and running on Baseball Savant. But away pitches, down and away, he is doing really well. In the uh, the outside lower third of the zone, he's hitting 500. Outside middle of the zone, he's hitting 667. Uh, down and in, he's hitting 1,000. He's batting at the uh, perfect uh, for pitches down and in. Uh, down middle of the plate, he's hitting 444. So really handling the bottom of the strike zone. Uh, up and in is a place where you can get him to struggle. Up and in, he's hitting 200. Um, now, obviously, this is a small sample size because it is still early in the season. Um, I mean, total pitches in these zones. He's only seen seven pitches in that outer lower third. Um, you know, looking at the uh, tic-tac-toe board here. That is the strike zone cut up in a three by three box. Um, he sees, frankly, he sees most of his pitches out of the strike zone. Uh, but the middle of the plate, he's seen 21 pitches. Bottom uh, middle of the zone, he's seen 20 pitches. And he's hitting that really well, really well for pitches in that zone. So that is cool from uh, Andres Jimenez. If we go back, actually, let's take a look at 2021 and let's see. We're doing this live. Let's see how that changes. So that outer lower zone, right? Outer third of the plate, bottom third of the zone. Last year, he hit, let me take 2022 off. He hit 083 in that zone. 083 in that zone. And now this year in 2022, he's hitting 500 in that zone. That's a big difference. That's a huge difference for a hitter. Uh, and that could really be what's unlocking Andres Jimenez's potential so far on this season. Uh, as, far as, as far as the percentile rankings go, uh, there's nothing eye-popping here, frankly, except for sprint speed and outs above average. His defense is in the 93rd percentile. His uh, expected batting average is in the 70th percentile. Expected weighted on base, hard hit percentage, these are all low, uh, 30 or below. Uh, barrel percentage is low, 29th percentile. So he's not going to be a hard hit guy. But if he's a gap hitter, and a guy who moves the line and gets on base and hits for a high average, I'll take it. I don't need everybody to be max exit velocity, hard hit guy. Uh, I need people to be on base and to move the line. And that's what Andres Jimenez is doing to start this season. Um, yeah, so it's a good stuff from uh, Andres Jimenez. Let's see on base percentage. He's up to a 352 on base. He's not drawing a ton of walks. He only has one walk on the season. Uh, so most of this on base is coming via the hit. But slugging 577, way, way above what he's done so far in his career. Uh, in 2020 with the Mets, it was 398 uh, slugging. Last year with us, it was a 351 slugging percentage. And now up to a 577. So that is a huge difference right there. 
Um, so good stuff from Andres Jimenez. A great weekend. Uh, I did finally realize what happened to Ahmed Rosario. Apparently his wrist, he's been battling a sore wrist. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do because I think at this point you can't I, you can't take Andres Jimenez away from shortstop. Like it's been too good this weekend. You got to let it ride a little bit. Do they stick Andres Jimenez, uh, Ahmed Rosario on the IL and be like, hey, look, the sore wrist. Yeah, we're going to put him on the IL. He missed the whole weekend. That would allow them to bring Yu Chang or somebody back from COVID without having to make a decision yet on anybody, like make a definitive decision on anybody yet. Um, so, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. I hope Andres Jimenez, I hope this works. I hope this really sticks at shortstop and it's good. I know some of you want Gabriel Arias to be the shortstop. Who knows? Maybe Andres Jimenez does find his way back to second base to let Arias play shortstop. Uh, he seems to be able to handle both positions pretty well. Uh, but, I mean, he's so good. He's so good with the glove at shortstop. I haven't seen enough of Arias at shortstop. I don't get to watch Columbus Clippers games uh, and see how good he is with the glove at shortstop. So, yeah, let's let it run. Let's let it run into this Padres series and see what Andres Jimenez has got coming back home to Cleveland. Um, MVP on the day. I got to go with Tristan McKenzie on this one. Lights out, you know, pitching six and a third shutout innings. Um, seven strikeouts like we talked about. MVP on the day definitely goes to McKenzie on this one. Because frankly, the offense was spread out all over the place. Everybody really contributed well on offense. Um, so yeah, it's a good series for your Cleveland Guardians. And it was a great game. McKenzie gets his first win of the season, by the way. Um, a great game for McKenzie. So MVP on the day. Last bit of news we got to talk about is the Guardians did have to make a decision, but frankly, everybody in baseball had to make a decision. And rosters were being reduced from 28 to 26 players uh, starting today. They let them finish the weekend series. Um, no, they didn't just say cut it off at the end of April. They're like, okay, clear. you have one game left in your weekend series. So finish your weekend series, then make a decision. And the Guardians make their decision, and they've designated for an assignment Logan Allen and first baseman Bobby Bradley, which frankly doesn't surprise anybody, right? Allen has absolutely struggled. Bobby Bradley has absolutely struggled to start this season. And you just, they're out of options, and you can't make excuses for them anymore. And it was the logical choice to make when you have to cut down two guys. Uh, It'll be interesting to see because everybody in baseball had to cut two guys or move two guys to the minors. So how much room do other teams have to take on a Logan Allen, to take on a Bobby Bradley? Um, you know, would they, it's, it's weird because they're DFA'd. Can they just go and claim them? Do they have to work out a trade with Cleveland? Uh, that stuff gets a little complicated. But there's a chance that both these guys could pass down to AAA. Like, if they clear waivers, they could stick them back down in AAA. So it may not be the last you've ever heard of those guys. They'll probably get an opportunity somewhere else if it's not here in Cleveland to stick around in the minors. I don't think either of those guys' baseball careers are necessarily done because of this decision, but they may be done in Cleveland. And I know it sucks. We all had high hopes for Bobby Bradley. And frankly, Logan Allen, too, when he came over from San Diego in that trade. But it's it's been Bad. I mean, his career so far for Logan Allen, um, he's got a career 580 ERA. He's got a career 1.637 whip, walks, hits per innings pitched. 
His strikeouts per nine are really low for his career, 6.4. That's just not good enough for a Cleveland pitcher, frankly. Uh, his ERA plus this year was an 86. Remember, plus stats, league average is set to 100. For a plus stat, you want to be above 100. He was at 86 for his career, 75 ERA plus. It just wasn't working for Logan Allen. And then for Bobby Bradley, too, I mean, a career negative uh, 0.3 war. He's a career 199 hitter, uh, career 278 on base, career 692 OPS, and a career 86 OPS plus. Now, for this season, he was batting 118 in 17 at-bats, uh, you know, slugging 118. It was two singles, basically. An OPS plus of negative 30 so far on this season. Now, he did not get many opportunities. Frankly, he never got enough opportunities last year. That was the problem. He had clearly beat Jake Bowers in spring training. He should have been the opening day first baseman in 2021. But Bowers got that opportunity because of options and, you know, whatever else goes on in a clubhouse, in a front office. And uh, Bobby Bradley doesn't come up to the middle of the season, shows some power, doesn't hit for a high average, but shows some power. If he comes hot out of spring training, you never know what could happen uh, if given that opportunity over Jake Bowers. Maybe this decision would have been made a year ago, and uh, it wouldn't have lasted this long. But, yep, both those guys no longer on the roster, and we'll see if they make it down to the minor leagues. Um, So, yeah, that is the big off-the-field news. There is some other big news um, going on around baseball, some more injuries and stuff like that. I guess John Means from the Orioles is going undergoing Tommy John surgery. Um, what else is going on? Eloy Jimenez is going to miss six to eight weeks with a hamstring strain. And I haven't talked about it yet, but the nasty situation with Trevor Bauer receiving the 324-game suspension, suspended for two full seasons, there are a, a third woman has come forward bringing forth uh, assault allegations against Trevor Bauer. It's a nasty situation. And I mean, I, I don't want to talk about a guy's personal life. Like, that's just, that feels wrong. Like, we're not here. We're here to talk baseball, not that stuff. And frankly, there is never an excuse to, uh, to abuse someone like that. And especially, uh, you know, what he was doing. Uh, it's it's pretty gross stuff, and I know he's battling it in court now and trying to like sue Major League Baseball, and it's oh man, it's turning out it's turning out to be a really gross situation. And frankly, Trevor Bauer is a person. If you listen to the first year of this podcast, first year and a half, he's someone I talked about a lot because what he was doing with Momentum Sports and giving behind the scenes access to baseball like never before was really interesting stuff. Like, I enjoyed how outspoken he was against Rob Manford and Major League Baseball and some of the things going on. And the access he was giving, uh, you know, with his film crew behind the scenes was frankly interesting stuff. And I hope somebody picks up that mantle. I hope Momentum Sports, whatever, if they stay an organization, if they stay, I don't know how much he was involved with it or if he was just the, the player, you know, side of it. But if they could find another player and continue to give behind-the-scenes access, I mean, that's what Pitching Ninja does, right? Pitching Ninja, I don't want to put Pitching Ninja and Trevor Bauer in the same sentence, but Pitching Ninja gives you behind-the-scenes access to what pitchers are thinking, how they grip the ball, how they attack things. And that's we need more of that in baseball. We need more access to the minds. This is such a thinking 
person's game. And uh, I'm, I'm very, you know, very obviously saying thinking person's game because there are a lot of women breaking through in baseball, whether it's in front offices and coaching. It's such a cerebral game that the more access we have to what these players are thinking and how they're approaching things and how they're training, uh, the more we learn about this game, the cooler it is. So, uh, yeah, so I hope somebody picks up that mantle and continues to like provide behind the scenes access to the game. All right, that is all my thoughts on this day. Uh, sorry, this episode is coming a little late this morning. I was dealing with a screaming baby that uh, just would not settle down. So had to handle that situation before I sat down to record. But I hope you enjoy the, the episode, enjoy the day off, and then we'll come back and we'll get into this Padre series. San Diego is going to be coming in for two. It's going to be two quick ones. I mean, a 6-10 on Tuesday night, and then turn around and do it again at 1 o'clock on Wednesday. Uh, we're going to get to see Clevenger. Clevenger is going to be able to pitch in Cleveland. Is this his first game of the season? I think it is. Um, so Clevenger is going to be back on the mound in Cleveland. That is going to be interesting. Um, and he is going up against, yeah, he has not pitched in 2022 yet. So uh, he's going to be on the mound against Plesak. And then uh, Wednesday, we are going to get to see Gore go for the Padres against Quantrill. So we will see what the, man, the rest of the Guardians starting pitching staff has to pick it up to the level. Bieber and McKenzie are setting a level here. And we need the rest of these starters to get to that level. Because these are going to be some tough offenses here. San Diego and Toronto's offense, who's coming in over the weekend, are no joke. These offenses are legit. So our pitchers definitely have their work cut out for them in this one. All right, that is all my thoughts. Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland baseball morning. Again, the final from Oakland. It's the Guardian 7, the A's 3. We'll be back in two days to talk about this San Diego series to see how Clevenger looks back on the mound coming back from all those injuries. You can follow me on Twitter at Davey Barris. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. You can let me know your thoughts on the game, or you can let me know I've been pronouncing a guy's name wrong the whole time. Either way, I welcome your emails. We'll discuss them on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor, so if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play them back on the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. So thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning.